Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to episode 58 of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm Paul Anderson, one of your co-hosts, here with some geezer, some bloke, not a formal introduction this week, Pete Wall, uh, it's just an awkward introduction instead, uh, and producer Jack Mills. (laughs) How's it going? Uh, It's going well, Jack. Can we agree that it should be in a cinema, not in a cinema, because it's an unsounded article in this case? In a cinema. We can agree to that if you'd like. Can we kick off with that kinetic intro I to mean, the show? I mean, you accuse me of being too formal in one week, and then the next week you're, you know, you're picking up on my uh, formal use of the English language. So <laughs> I don't know where I stand with you, Pete. Well, to be honest. Most of this week. You stand in the best position possible, Paul, which is opposite a microphone, <laughs> about to throw out the 58th episode of this wondrous show. Uh, we're excited to get going. We've got loads to get to, not least our review of Mother, which we've been looking forward to for a little while. Uh, in tandem with the re-release, 40th anniversary release of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, yes. which we were lucky enough to see on the big screen this week. Apart from that, as you know, we have sections to this show, don't we, Paul? What are they? We do. So we try and take you on a trip through the cinema. Uh, so we have In the Foyer, uh, which is kind of just something that we decide to talk about relating to film. Yeah. Talking of things that sound needlessly really, so. formal, we have yes. a section called In the Foyer. Which is, which is this, the one section I named, in fact. So yeah, there we I go. I like it though, man. Um, and then we, then we after that, we, we are at the popcorn counter with popcorn movies. So that's a couple of films each that myself and Pete have seen uh, and producer Jack uh, if he's done his homework, have you done your homework? I have this done week? my homework. This yes, week. I don't know why I doubted you, Jack, because yeah. you're normally very good at doing your homework. So, well, that's good. Then. Well done, sunshine. You've done well again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, and then followed by coming attractions, uh, where we talk about a trailer that we're quite excited about, uh, and then on to the feature reviews, which, as Pete said, will be Mother and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Indeed. You could have just said Mother with an exclamation mark. You're you're reviewing mother. We're reviewing mother. That is true. And we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that clarification later on. I'm confused already. Yeah. So, First yeah. of all, though, before you know, we get bogged down. Let's step right into that foyer, Paul, and talk about this week's topic. What have you got for us? Well, it's a topic that I'm quite excited about because uh, it's a topic that's quite close to my heart. Um, X66 Film Festival is coming up in Basingstoke, um, run by friend of the show, uh, Mark Brennan, um, who has been on before. Um, and this is uh, a short film festival in my hometown, which is part of the reason I'm very excited about it, to bring some culture to Basingstoke, which is rare. Um, and it's a very, very well put together short film festival that's now in its second year, and we yeah, will be attending. And I mean, on this occasion, we're sort of using it as a jumping off point, right, to have a little bit of a discussion about what is central to Exit 6 Film Festival, which is short films. Um we have in the past as many listeners might know um, been a bit more heavily involved with the short film scene and a bit less so in the last sort of year or so but we wanted to talk a little bit about where short films sit in the current film landscape like what is the place for short films if any where can you see them what can they do who are they useful for first of all Paul you're someone you know who came into film reviewing through the avenue of short films what attracted you originally to covering that that area well initially it was the fact that I don't think many people were covering them um would be the honest answer I remember having a, a conversation with while I was at university with a filmmaker whose name escapes me now so apologies but I think he'd been nominated or had won a BAFTA uh, for his short film um and I had a conversation with him about that it was quite hard to get shorts made and that no one really covered shorts and no one would really review them so mm. it was kind of off of the back of that that when strangers in a cinema 
uh, made the jump over to short film reviews, um, which is obviously something that we we did before, as you've as you've rightfully said there. Um, it was basically sort of kind of a gap in the market, and I kind of thought that actually a lot of the people a lot of people who make short films are, are, are up and coming filmmakers that won't necessarily get the chance to have an objective review elsewhere. So mm. I think that you know I think it's it's very important that you know they can they could get an honest critique of the of the work that they were making. Yeah. I think they are they are an important um, stepping stone. To, well, yeah, I mean, to feature filmmaking, but they we, shouldn't only be that. We just have to think of, of examples. You know, our film of the year, uh, the year before last, was American Honey, the Andrew Arnold film, which um, last year, in fact, last, last year, year, right? Yeah, yeah. last year. Um, Andrea Arnold herself won an Oscar for one of her short films. So, you know, you can see clear examples of where people's short work has been acknowledged and that's taken them on to sort of maybe even bigger and better things. I think often the perception from the sort of general public is that short films are so overly confined by their running time that you can't get um, the same sort of scope as you might be able to with a feature length uh, production. However, I think what we learned in the course of doing the Strange in a Cinema stuff that was geared towards short films is that the filmmakers who are at the top of their game in that genre in I shouldn't say genre in that area in that space of short filmmaking actually make the confines of the film uh, a great benefit right I think some of the best stuff we saw works best within whether it's 10 minutes yeah, I, 12 no, minutes 15 I, I minutes I completely agree with you and I think it, I think it's almost a shame at times that it seems to be like a proven ground for feature films um because as much you know as I love features as much as anyone else but um, also, I've, there's, I've got a lot of room in my heart for short films as well. I don't think it necessarily should be a proven ground, but short films don't seem to be as commercially viable as features. I think it's, it's you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see a point where maybe you get in front of every feature rather than sitting through reams of shitty adverts, you get like a, an interesting short film to be put in front of it. Almost like going back way back to before my time, we had A and B features, but maybe mm. the B feature is a short. I think. Well, you get that with nice. pi- like Pixar movies. Yeah, Pixar, in fair, if Pixar do it, yeah, something like that. But like rather than just Pixar doing it all of the time. I mean, yeah, Jack, what you're not that well versed in life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what an end! Um, yeah, oh, yeah, what absolutely. an end! No, uh, no. What are your thoughts on short films? Are there something you've seen much of, or you know, not not having I a proper I've, really just... I've seen that many short films. I think most of the short stuff I've seen is is mostly animations. Yeah, so maybe the Pixar. Stuff, yeah, though. so definitely the Pixar stuff. Um, so that's I think I'm really quite excited about Exit Six because for me it would be a nice way to sort of introduce myself to more short films. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, Paul, isn't it? That I think part of it, of what Jack's saying is access. Because it's very easy for people to say, like, oh, you know, you, have you not, well, haven't you seen more short films? But I mean, where do we actually come across Well, you things? have to I mean, go looking for them, really. Yeah. I mean, like some, a number of filmmakers will post on YouTube. Um, most, I would say most short filmmakers that certainly, and things may have changed since I was more involved with it, um, certainly a lot of the stuff we watched was through Vimeo but again you'd have to go looking for that um, or film festivals basically film festivals yeah, really. I mean, you, don't, you don't see you don't see like a home release for any of these well films you, really well you do um, on occasion Paul because you get things like um, BFI occasionally will put out like a compilation but those tend to be shorts that have already had um, you know interest at festival well, level it's generally, or awards it's or, also generally from it's, it's like a like for example sitting on the shelf up there is like a, a collection of David Cronenberg shorts for example mm. Um, it seems to be like maybe they, they look at an established director yeah. and go back to look at his his or her short film Certainly. after that. So. And like touching on something you said you know before when you were talking about um, instead of adverts, maybe we could have shorts. It's interesting, I think, that when we say that shorts can be a jumping off point for directors to get into features, in fact, quite a number of directors come straight into features from commercial work. 
as opposed to making short films or yeah. at least at least pursuing that with any great vigor i mean you see almost this sense that like people jump the line because they've established themselves as as sort of visual stylists in that medium and then jump across to, yeah. to feature filmmaking so i mean it came to mind because we were talking i think on last week's show about tarsem singh and um and i was sort of uh really enthused about the idea of people seeing the fall and he made that film from basically trotting the globe and working for commercial interest for you know advert campaigns for people like guinness uh and then parlaying that into a feature film making career which i think some people might look at with a little bit of um uh, resentment yeah (laughs) Yeah. a little bit of, of resentment and dislike so um this is all to say that i mean this film festival coming up this uh, coming weekend at 66 in in Basingstoke is such a as Jack was saying sort of such an exciting opportunity to see all kinds of filmmakers from sort of veterans to young upstarts to uh, more established people to actors and actresses who are just sort of finding their way or who have uh, stepped into both features and short uh, format all with a, a showcase for the stuff that they're doing right yeah absolutely and I think it, you know it's a uh... And I would say I would urge anyone that hasn't been to a, a short film festival or, or a film festival full stop. Short film festivals are, are, can be a bit easier because there's, you can fit a lot more films in. It and you know, I, I would fully admit not everyone will quite happily sit through four or five films in a day, but with shorts you can sit through quite a few, and and, and it's fine. You know, you're in and out, and you're done and dusted. But I would say if you are interested in films and haven't been to a film festival, either short or long film festival, then then certainly go. Um, X66 is a good one because you get to talk to the filmmakers afterwards. There's one I've been to in the past called No Gloss, which is yearly in Leeds. Again, that was a really nice one. But just look for one that, that, you know, go and I would say go, go to the bar afterwards and talk to the filmmakers because if you are kind of even half interested in the filmmaking process, it's always interesting to A, see short films and B, connect with filmmakers and actors and actresses. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to get to talk I, to the people I, I would second so. that. I would second that on the point that whether it's short films or feature films or documentary films or whatever kind of filmmaking takes your interest, I think that attending these festivals is absolutely paramount because a lot of the time, obviously there's going to be industry people as we've experienced in the past. There's industry people talking to industry people, but the people who put these festivals on want grassroots fans well, this is the thing i think the, only, the thing i think is a shame is like when when we went last year i would say probably eight out of ten people said oh have you got a film here and when we said no they kind of seemed surprised and some of them were like well why would you be here then and it's like well because we're interested in film <laughs> we want to watch some good short films so uh, that was that was quite interesting really and i would say these you know don't be put off by these things they, they are meant for everyone the, the most common question i got are the, open to everyone, at the last so. x66 was was do you model professionally and um, but that's just like a different experience that we've had you're not even joking that's the thing <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. but yeah all joking aside like really looking forward to this weekend should be a great time um yeah I mean, all the points that we've covered um, are going to sort of ring true, I think, when it comes to Saturday. The whole course of Saturdays is going to be like wall-to-wall, chock-a-block with with films and and creative people. So it should be fantastic. And drink at the bar afterwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not allowed to drink. No, you're not allowed out of our sight, Jack, to be honest. No, you're not allowed out of our sight, to be honest. You can watch five films, then you're off to bed. And and (laughs) just to to put a cap on this, we will create some content whilst we're there. We're trying to talk to as many people as we can involved in the festival and we'll certainly have at least one interview included on probably yes. next we tried to talk to someone tonight show. but technical issues unfortunately uh, hampered us once again um, but that's about it for In the Foyer we'll be back after this with Popcorn Movie <laughs> so
So yes, popcorn movies, Pete. Um, I have started talking, and it's probably your turn to speak. So would you like to start now? <laughs> this is that natural fact. flow that we've got on this what show after fifty-eight? I'm pretty sure I'm going to embarrass eps. you with popcorn movies this week. So, uh, you, well, you can say that, and you're going to feel the fool when I tell you that I saw a cinematic masterpiece from one Michael Questa. Uh, going by Michael Questa, Michael <laughs> Questa, the, the man himself. Yeah, I uh, caught up with the film American Assassin, which originally had a pre screening which I managed to miss um, and then thought I better do my due diligence and uh, catch up with it because I haven't seen it catch up with it later well no it isn't Paul because you've done yourself a (laughs) favour this is um, very bad this might be the worst film I've seen at the cinema this year in fact I think that that is the case is it worse than Um, The Mummy yeah, it, no, it is. It oh, is for Christ. sure. I'm going. Um, I want to go now. So, <laughs> I, I'll lay out my case for why that is so, and and then we'll move very swiftly on. Even with Michael Keaton in it. Even with Michael Keaton looking as if he Look regretted you, signing on to this project. In a yeah. film. Eh? Look at you knowing an actor in a film. <laughs> All right, sorry. I feel like this is my time to talk, you guys. Sorry, yeah. So I'm going to carry on. Um, American Assassin opens up with uh, the central character played by a sort of boy band looking kid called Dylan O'Brien on the beach with his girlfriend um, ready to propose marriage just to be interrupted by a group of terrorists who sweep across the beach murdering indiscriminately not unlike (laughs) what happened just a couple of years ago in Tunisia Tunisia. so um, we find ourselves in sort of very serious real world territory which was quite bracing for me and I thought well, I, I didn't know that this film was going to go in, into that territory and I didn't know that it was going to be maybe that, that serious um, I shouldn't have jumped the gun it isn't serious at all what we do is we use that real life tragedy as a jumping off point for this yeah as I say sort of fresh faced um, haircut kid to then do a sort of montage where he trains in MMA for about 18 months, fires a gun at a uh, shooting range, throws a few knives at pictures of terrorists on his wall, uh, all in the interest of avenging the death of his fiancée. He then decides to um, position himself within a terrorist organisation, I believe in Afghanistan. Uh, Things obviously don't go too well because he has next to no real right to be anywhere near the position that he puts himself into um he's quickly uh teamed up with let's say michael keaton who is a sort of renegade working on in the kind of black ops sector of the cia uh who is going to instruct him and sort of mold him in again a sort of montage training sequence into an elite assassin of the american kind who is going to wreak vengeance on terrorists the um, world over. It sounds shit. Dude, it, it is bad. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it sounds yeah. like my favourite It's a bad action film. It's a bad action film because, I mean, that set up, like I say, it could be played for um, kind of knock-around, gun-toting, you know, action fun. Mm. But the setup is mishandled. Like, it, it, it's just off-putting, honestly, to... to touch on something so serious and then go into such silly territory but then like almost everybody here Michael Keaton included just looks like they don't know why they've signed up to do this and like Dylan O'Brien at at the centre of it does his best I think maybe he has a career uh, uh, you know doing this kind of action work in the future (coughs) but the script here is so deplorably stupid that by the time we get to the twist ending which I won't give away you just think like can we stop throwing around real world social political issues as just like a fun backdrop for, you know, 
uh, like video game japery. I, I I found this thing. I would feel angry about it if it wasn't just so bad and so badly handled. And why it's made its way to the cinema, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's off the back of stuff like the success of John Wick Two. I, I guess, and and the way that gunplay seems to be uh, receiving a bit of a renaissance yeah. in in recent times, it could be well, the John case. John Woo's but... back soon, isn't he? With a... right, so yeah, may, maybe that's what we've got to blame for American Assassin. But please avoid this at all costs. Don't encourage any of these people. Don't even pick it up on streaming. It is terribly, terribly misguided and should never have been made. Did it Paul, have quite a high budget. Uh, I I have no. Idea. It feels sort of mid budget to me. Yeah. You, you can see that some of the um, the location work is is restricted. Let's say um, to to probably save on on a few dollars, but yeah, it, it just just really just really bad and quite quite boring, honestly. Paul, what have you got? My first popcorn movie this week. Uh, I've also gone quite low brow, Pete. I think you'll really? appreciate this. I did feel for you a little bit, so I've gone. I've tried to match you on this one. Uh, I've got Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker from 1979. Well, I'll forgive you your horrendous pronunciation, just to say, like, of course, this is what you've done, Paul. You've come in and you've gone like, oh, Pete, just pick anything for popcorn movies. And so I've gone ahead with a third-rate action film, and then you can step in and be like, uh, actually, I've uh, picked Tarkovsky's work, uh, Stalker. I don't know if you've seen it. I have. <laughs> no, you haven't. I'm better than you. Tell me about it, Paul. Tell us about it. Why is it so great? Why is it up there in the canon of the greatest films ever made that I've never seen? It was shit, mate. Oh, was it really? No, no, it wasn't. No. <laughs> Uh, no, well, thank you for that introduction. I think you've, uh, you know, I think you've, you've set up the film quite well for me there. Um, no, uh, I, I really liked it, and I, I kind of expected to. It's taken me quite a while to get around to watching this. Um, I, uh, to that, I will attest. I wasn't sure whether to watch this or Solaris first, and then watch the Solaris first, or American Assassin, but, or I mean, American Assassin. Yeah, um, but yes, yeah, so, so I finally got around to, to watching Stalker. Um, just to set up the premise, um, kind of, you know, it's set in well, it's set in a, a, an undescribed country. It looks like Russia, so I'm going to. It is a Russian film, so I would assume Russia. Um, uh, basically, uh, a guy, the titular stalker, um, leads people into what appears to be like a forbidden zone. There's an exclusion zone set up. There's some rumour of it's a comet, but it's never actually explicitly explained what it is. And within this zone uh, is a room uh, that that grants you your innermost desire, but you don't get to pick what that desire is. So it's like your subconscious desire. Um so, Unlimited 4K Blu-ray box sets, surely, <laughs> in your case. That, that might well be the case, yeah, that might well be the case. Um, so, yeah, you've got a fairly, you know, you've got a fairly deep, deep setup here. Um, and the film has uh, a reputation, uh, a very, very good reputation, in fairness, and is very, very influential on a lot of other sci-fi films, which is not something I'd realised until I started watching this. In fact, um, there's a series of books called the Southern Reach Trilogy, uh, that Alex Garland's just started adapting, and this is it'd be interesting to see what Alex Garland does with the first book because the first book called Annihilation, which I think the film's out in February time, and the he's, first he's book called Annihilation right, owes a lot to Stalker. He's right a director on that, right? Yeah. So it's his follow up yeah. to Ex Machina. Yeah, but this honestly, it, it owes so much to Stalker when I was uh, having just finished the book, so that was that was good timing, really. But back to back to Stalker itself, it's fantastic. I can honestly say. I've never seen a film quite like this, um, and this—I don't care if this this sounds pretentious. Um, you could bang on about all the all the, the metaphors and the hidden meaning in meaning in it until the cows come home. And yes, I would say if I watched this again, I'd probably take a lot more from it. From first viewing, I thought it was one. It's one of the most visually stunning films I think I've seen. It's much like I think you've seen Solaris, haven't you, Pete? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it looks as good, if not even better. 
than Solaris looked. I think it's it's a masterpiece from from a visual sense. Um, there's some very very woozy, very very woozy dream sequence. Well, dreamlike sequences in it, and yeah, it's it's like nothing else I've seen. The atmosphere that it creates is is fantastic. Um, the visuals are, are are on point, and it's just it's absolutely superb piece of filmmaking. Would you recommend it to Jack? I'd be very intrigued to see what Jack would make of this, to be honest, if he gets off his fucking notepad and stops doodling. <laughs> Sorry. Are you in the room, Jack? Are you, I am in are the you room. working on this I podcast am. today? Or? I to be fair, I know I'm talking I'm about a Russian art house film. I'm sorry. <laughs> it <but> sounds fantastic. <laughs> Good. He sorry. Was, it's weird <laughs> because <laughs> as you were doing that part of the review, Jack had begun to hack at his own wrists with his pencil <laughs> as if he just wanted to put everything he, to he, an end. He paid attention for the American Assassin review, I noticed, but... Oh, dude! Yeah. I just saw him order American Assassin on uh, on pre-release Blu-ray. Yeah, Blu-ray. Yeah, uh, but no, honestly, Stalker. Do you know what? I would be very intrigued to see what you make of Stalker, okay, Jack. Cool. I would be. So, um, do, should we say that's my homework for this? We should be my homework as well, dude. Like, I haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah, well, both I really of you should. watch Stalker, then. Um, cool. Both Sounds of you good. watch Stalker. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not in time. In an episode or two's time, I think we'll get. Yeah, you guys we'll, we'll bring it back Stalker. in. Yeah, we'll definitely bring it back. So, okay, yeah. um, for my second popcorn film of the week, I have a film called True Story, which has just gone streaming, I believe, on, on the Netflix platform. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, directed by Rupert, Rupert Gould, I should say. But Rupert. The real, <laughs> Rupert. Uh, but the real headline here is that the central pair in this film are played by Jonah Hill and James Franco. That's the other one that's in it, um, Jonah Hill. Yeah, Jonah Hill plays a journalist by the name of Michael Finkel. This thing is based on a true story, for whatever that's worth, which I continue to believe is, is fairly little. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, Michael Finkel, at the outset of the film, is in a bit of hot water because he's gone to an African nation where he's put together a story for the New York Times in which he has sort of not so much fabricated as he has sort of created like a collage of information from a lot of different stories and passed that off as if it's all the story of one boy. He submits his story to the New York Times, he's published, and then he falls into um, sort of having to answer difficult questions from his editors about how much of the story is actually true and how much of it he's sort of embellished a little bit. From this point, he's cut loose from the Times and he finds himself in a sort of hinterland with very little to save or sort of rebuild his reputation. Would you believe it? Um, something comes along and sort of falls into his lap in the form of a potential uh, sort of mysterious murder case involving James Franco's character who may or may not have committed a sort of <coughs> heinous mass killing of his entire family. And from this point, we are in very much territory of a sort of um, investigative journalist questioning uh, potential killer over a desk and lots of scenes of sort of back and forth between the two. In these exchanges Franco's character reveals that he wants to sort of learn to write and learn the techniques of a, of a great writer whereas Jonah Hill wants to learn the truth about the subject of the book that he has now decided he's going to write to sort of rebuild his reputation and obviously to make himself a, a quick buck. You've made it sound like it's a very interesting film but it, in doing that you've reminded me that I have actually seen it and had forgotten all about it. <laughs> yeah, dude, like, I mean, we, we've talked about this a little bit off mic, but I mean, it is an interesting setup. And I think the central problem with True Story is that it all comes off as like an interesting set of circumstances 
carried out by people who are trying to make a movie that's a bit beyond their reach. Right. Um, I think Jonah Hill is is fine, and I think he's done good work elsewhere. Not least Moneyball, obviously, which is fairly you know well received. I think James Franco throws a lot of shit at the wall, and some of it sticks. Um, and I think in this film, it's just a little bit beyond them. I think that the attempts at sort of um, creeping tension and revelation come off as a bit second rate there's a a theme that emerges about using double negatives in writing that's then brought out by Franco's character in the court case surrounding his own guilt or or innocence which is one of those moments in in cinema where you feel the the screenplay sort of sort of thudding against the desk where where someone thinks that that's the sort of drop the the pen so to speak moment where everybody's going to be so yeah. stunned by the creativity of the of the uh, of the writing that you've committed to now screen and it it just played a bit yeah like i said a bit second rate yeah, I think, to me i think for me it was one of those films where whilst i was watching it i was like yeah this is this is all right and then as time's gone on, as I said, until you mentioned that we'd be doing it on the podcast, well, you would bring up as a popcorn movie. I was just like, oh yeah, I've yeah. seen that. And I just, I, I would say probably four weeks time, you, you'll struggle to remember it yeah, at all. Yeah, and I mean, sort of closing point on this one, and there's there's a point that, that we'll come on to later on in one of the feature reviews that we do about um, the unearned nature of certain scenes of um, sort of graphic violence or suffering. And I think that one of the things that undercuts true story is that it's dealing with such um, difficult material in terms of, you know, ch- child killing Mm. and to have that as a sort of acting exercise for a pair of you know aspiring um often goofy actors comedic actors yeah Yeah, Yeah. it's not it's not to say that you know that they can't do serious work of course they can but to jump right into a story of this nature i think is is not necessarily uh the place to to begin with that pursuit so yeah true story um is interesting enough, it passes the time, but as Paul has, has intimated, I think you're going to forget it very quickly and you're going to wonder, you know, maybe whether they should have kept this kind of hefty material for later on in their careers when they'd established themselves as people able to handle it a little bit better. Paul, what have you got apart from your first uh, showy pick for the week? Uh, I've, gone, I've gone a little bit more, you know, a bit a bit more down to earth here. Tell uh, me this is like like Blood Corpse Baby 7 or whatever, like get us no, back to Blood Corpse Baby seven. <laughs> normal business. No, I think you'll find that 6 is a superior film. <laughs> uh, no, this is uh, Flight of the Navigator, a childhood favourite of mine, which I have not seen for, I would say, 20 years, I think. Um, I watched this and Battery's not included and since I don't know why one. I'm not talking about... You haven't seen it since you were one year I'm not 21, old. Pete. That's, that's Jack. <laughs> Oh, yeah, my, um, my bad. Yeah. Uh, so no, this is Flight of the Navigator, directed by Randall Kleiser from 1986. Um, and in a lot of ways, this film may as well be described as Close Encounters, the junior novelisation. Um, no, not really at all. I don't know why I've said that. There's there's UFOs in this. <laughs> Put that on the yeah. poster. Yeah. There's UFOs there's, in there's, this. There's UFOs in this. Uh, basically, the film starts. The film starts with with quite an intriguing and as a kid, I remember like absolutely terrifying premise. So, um, kid goes out. I think looking sort of playing in the woods. Goes out looking for his little brother. Uh, falls down. Falls down into the woods. Uh, wakes up. Comes around. Goes back to his family house, and his family aren't there. Uh, and you're like, what's what the hell's going on here? His family aren't there, and then like the, he goes into the house. They phone the police, and they realise the kids come. The kid has been missing for eight years, but he hasn't aged at all. So he goes to find his family, realises that actually he's been 
He's been uh, not necessarily abducted, but well, kind of abducted by this alien so spaceship. There is a yeah. little bit of a close encounter. There is, there is a close yeah, encounter sure. vibe, yeah. So he's been like abducted by this alien spaceship, um, and that kind of, like when it starts, it's, it's pretty cool to be honest. And I thought, yeah, I'm quite into this. You know, this is this is a, this is a genuinely interesting setup. Um, and then about halfway through, it appears much like a lot of eighty cinema that the screenwriters just boshed about three grams of cocaine. Um, and the alien spaceship for out of for no reason at all gets starts to be voiced by Pee Wee Herman, um, Paul Rubens, Paul Rubens, isn't it? I think his name mm. is. It uh, starts to be voiced by Pee Wee Herman. Um, lots of little weird alien creatures turn up, and there are lines such as "See you later, navigator," uh, which you know. Gold. Pretty proud of that line, to be honest. Um, yeah, it's a shame. It starts well and just degenerates into sort of a, a shameless '80s mess with no structure whatsoever. Um, yeah, it's fun, but unfortunately, kind of it's tarnished my memory a little bit. Um, and also, uh, it does feature the least high octane escape scene I think in any film ever. And if you've, you, I think I posted it on Facebook the other day. If you haven't watched it yet, watch it. Basically, the the little kid tries to escape from the lab he's being held at and gets into this like little really boring service robot which has got a, an 80s acronym like Daryl but I can't remember what it's called but it's got an 80s acronym for a name and you've got this tiny little like robot thing on wheels that looks a bit like canine from Doctor Who without a head going really really slowly across this military base with the most high intensity 80s synth music you've ever heard it's an amazing scene and for that I will remember the film fondly but maybe I shouldn't have watched it again and that's me done for it's me done for popcorn movies Jack you're up incredible Yes. What was your homework? So I was set last week. Mother. Uh, Not Mother, Darren Aronofsky's divisive mother. No. Uh, mother, South Korean film, uh, directed by the same person that directed Okja, which... Uh, Who was that, Jack? Uh, I'm not sure. Pete, can you search that up for me? <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Bong Jin Ho, Jack. Thank you. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. Uh, search that out, my brain. I I'm not very good at saying names out loud, so... I'll take that one. Uh, we set you up for that, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for those that don't know, it's a film um, set in South Korea about a mother who tries to sort of get her son off a murder charge. Would you say that's correct? Yeah. I mean, the, the intimation of the film is that her son is mentally limited, stable, yeah. perhaps, and okay. that the mother needs to do everything that she can to keep him out of hot water, right? Yeah, I would say so. Um, which I personally found quite strange. I thought their uh, on-screen relationship was a little bit complex and somewhat perverted in that sense, uh, especially the scene where he's... I, th- I guess he's been on a night out and he suddenly gets into her bed and starts sleeping in the same bed as her. Uh, he's a full-grown man. I well. feel a, a recommendation or a homework assignment for uh, the uh, film, Mika Takeshi film Visitor Q at some point oh, on this, yes. on okay, this track, but we'll keep that on the back burner <laughs> for, for now. I think it was one of the first bits of homework you sent me, wasn't it, Visitor Q? I think it I think might it have been. Way yeah. back, way back in the early episodes, I think you sent me that as homework. Yeah, that, that really ups the ante. But um, do you know, or did you know much going in, Jack, about the sort of um, role that mothers play in... in uh, the educational uh, sort of upbringing of the kids in South Korea, because this is something that is so much on the mother figure to okay. m- like sometimes be a, a figure of, of fear and intimidation to push a child to academic 
excellence and to just generally achieving so, yeah, I had, more than the I previous had generation. So something like that. I think that really colours this film is the way in which um, a protective mother and for the general public to access the you know best and brightest of Asian cinema. And so what we need really is these kinds of access points. And I think Okja was an access point and I think that that could set people up to watch things like Snowpiercer from Bong Joon-ho yeah, and, and, and Mother and then uh, things like The Handmaiden obviously can lead people on to Park Chan-wook's previous yeah, work. No, so absolutely. yeah, if you're yet to check out some of those luminaries of the South Korean filmmaking scene, get on that. While South Korea is still a place. <laughs> yeah, whilst, whilst it hasn't been annihilated by accident by uh, by our feared leader Donald Trump yes. uh, by proxy to the UK then yeah uh, get involved with, yes. with cinema outside of your own yes. get nation's involved with, borders get involved with the South Korean cinema if you haven't uh, right that brings us to the end of Popcorn Movies we'll be back after this brief break with our coming attractions So, back indeed we are. Um, I want to go first, Pete. I'm just going to throw that out there. So I'm going to, if that's all right with you. Uh, very brief, very brief coming attraction from me. Uh, three words here, or maybe two words and a number. Uh, Super Troopers 2, Pete, is coming next year. I can't wait. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, the first film is a film that I, I am aware has its shortcomings, but perfectly uh, plays into my very juvenile and silly sense of humour. And I think if you do have a, a juvenile and silly sense of humour and haven't seen uh, Broken Lizard Super Troopers, then you absolutely should. Um, it's got an ensemble cast led by Jay Chacon-Sandra, which is probably a complete butchering of his name. But Dude, I should, have, I should have rested on those laurels. I think you did a pretty bang-up job there. Okay, and, fair enough. And you undercut yeah, yourself yeah. for no reason. <laughs> In this time. Uh, and then, so Jay Chakrasanda and the the rest of the Broken Lizard uh, comedy troupe, and with able support of Brian Cox, who is on amazing form in the original Super Troopers. Um, yes, they've, they've crowdfunded Super Troopers 2, which I think is fantastic. Uh, and I'm very, very much looking forward to the silliness and brazen juvenile antics in the sequel uh, and that's all I have to say on that Super Troopers 2 up next year Pete coming attractions over to you um, okay I'm going to go for a, a film called The Party which comes out in the, Ooh, UK, I've seen the, trailer in the UK at least on the 13th of October now I go in with some trepidation because the fact that it looks like this sort of chamber piece akin a little bit to the Polanski film um, Carnage. Ah, which, this is why you're asking about Carnage. Yeah, it's yeah. one of the one of the reasons why I was. I mean, it, Carnage from a few years back is li- limited storytelling in the sense that we seem to have a whole load of actors in in one location. It's a dinner party that comes full circle. It seems from tragedy to comedy, or maybe from tragedy to comedy and back to tragedy. Who knows? This is written directed by Sally po- uh, Potter, not Porter. Sally Potter, who most recently directed uh, Ginger and Rosa. And stars a host of interesting people from. Have pre- you seen any of her films before? Because I I did see this trailer. Ginger and, Ginger and Rosa, yeah. I think, a few years ago. I've yeah. never seen a Sally Potter film personally. Uh, so Patricia Clarkson, Bruno Gantz. We've also got uh, Emily Mortimer. We've got Killian Murphy, Kristen Scott Thomas, who I'd watch in almost anything. So yeah, it, I mean, details are scant. We've seen the trailer. It says here. Uh, comedy wrapped around a tragedy it starts a celebration and ends with blood on the floor yeah this kind of small uh, British made comedy film doesn't often make its way to the cinema screens I'm kind of interested to see which way this goes it could end up being something that I don't really agree 
you know, it doesn't really It will make it to Cineworld because it's a Picture House production and Picture right. House is owned by Cineworld, which I think is how we got God's Own Country as well, interestingly <coughs> enough. Right, so um, yeah, uh, you know, with some reservation, I am looking forward to that and that, like I say, releases, I think, on the 19th of October. Yes, I think you are correct. Right, and that's a very brief uh, coming attraction section this week. After this break, we'll be back with our feature reviews of Mother and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So we are back with, um, well, first off here, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which I must confess, Paul, I hadn't seen. I'm a little bit jealous that you've never, never seen, seen this before and got to see it on the big film. screen for the first time. So I'm yeah. genuinely, genuinely quite jealous of you for that one. This was a Close Encounter of the First Kind for oh. me. Oh, um, so to, to set up, the film uh, for the uninitiated uh, focuses on a character played by Richard Dreyfus, obviously um, coming to prominence two years previous in, in Jaws who plays, uh, I think he works, what, electrical lines or something yeah. like that. Yeah, works on electrical lines. and He's, he's an everyman, isn't he? Yeah, he is very much an everyman. And he's drawn into this intrigue surrounding the appearance of mysterious glowing objects and ships on the horizon that he encounters very early on, firsthand, and then is compelled to try to build some kind of connection with whatever it is that has come into his life. Smash potato. Yes. Uh, <laughs> often to the detriment of the people around him, not least his wife and family. Here's a clip. Give me a tone. Ray to the second. Up a full tone. Me to the third. Down a major third. No to the first. Drop an octave. No. Come on, So to the fifth. So just just to start, I had that in headphones. Just how good is that clip for a start? It's got that iconic like little Incredible. John Williams John Williams score to it. The little do 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 do. Yeah, which I've done no justice I mean, to whatsoever. That, by no, doing but there's that. a great jumping off point, yeah. Paul, because I left this screening. As I say, uh, my my first encounter with Close Encounters, I left it just with that melody in my head and wanting to repeat it over and over and over again. We should say, of course, um, it almost goes without saying, that this is a Steven Spielberg film, the wunderkind who sort of established himself with Jaws, like I say, in 1975. This one released in 1977, but very much a sort of... Um, I mean, you said earlier when we were talking off mic that this is maybe the adult companion piece to E.T., perhaps, yeah, right? Yeah, a, a rough way yeah. to describe it. And... Yeah, really about a lot of... I mean, there's a lot to get into, isn't there, Paul? But really about the way that a man relates to his family, his nearest and dearest, and also that nagging feeling that there's something more. I should say a person, maybe more than a man. But then I would also say this is a film about the filmmaker or the artist as creator or visionary as that relates to the rest of the civilian world yeah complete, I would completely agree with that and you know I did um, I did some research on this way back in my university days and I did remember writing an essay about Close Encounters and about how it was um, how it was really interesting and not a coincidence at all that Francois Truffaut was cast in it because um, Spielberg was a big fan of the French New Wave 
um, and to get Truffaut in it I think was like a dream come true for him if I remember reading that I think he was he's blown away that he agreed to be in it which just goes to show just how well regarded Jaws was if you've got someone of the calibre of Truffaut in it um, and yeah I think it's I think it's fantastic and I think it's certainly it's certainly one of his most personal films on, on multiple levels um, as he said and then what was quite cool actually watching it last night was that little almost like uh, sort of Blu-ray special feature like ten minute film they had in yeah, front of it, it was we actually got, quite nice. I, I thought, I thought of, I'm, I'm more of that, please. I think we got a, this, this sort of um, yeah intro to the film um, with not only Spielberg himself talking about uh, his his memories of making the film, but also people like Denis Villeneuve talking about the way in which the film has influenced his own work. Well, Arrival, yeah. massively so. Massively I, I mean, so, yeah, yeah, like. Obviously, we've already done a review of Arrival, and I can't go back and change that. But if I had seen this film before I saw that film, I mean, the the parallels are, are incredible, mm. like uncanny and, and obviously deliberate on the part of Denis Villeneuve. Yeah. He's, he's clearly, from this documentary short thing that we saw, a huge fan of Steven Spielberg in general, but of this film in particular. And that really comes across in the work that he's he's done since. But yeah, I just I just thought like... I don't, for whatever reason, Paul, I think that I've always thought of Close Encounters as, like, slightly minor Spielberg. And I, and I couldn't have been more what? wrong. I couldn't yeah, have been more wrong. Completely. And that was based on nothing but ignorance because I'd not seen the <laughs> film, right? So I always thought of it as this sort of earlier film that maybe I, I'd missed out, but that's okay. No, it's not okay. This is <laughs> this is absolutely essential stuff. It's, it's just the almost perfect piece of cinema, right, in my opinion. Um... Yeah, I mean, you obviously went into this with high expectations because you knew what you were going into, but we should talk a little bit maybe about how does this transfer? It's been adapted into a sort of, or transferred, I should say, into a 4K um, reworking of the original print from 40 years ago. Did that come across in no. the screen? No, uh, this is the, the one thing I will say. is my, the, the film's fantastic. If you haven't seen it, see it. Um, and I, I would agree with you, Pete. I think... Like Spielberg at his prime makes perfect cinema film, like perfect blockbusters, if that makes sense. They're not necessarily, they're not like, they're not sitting, it's not like Stalker where you sit there and have to really engage with Stalker. And that's great. I, I love the fact it has to engage with Stalker. And I've got no interest, I've got no issue engaging with art house movies, which is something we'll come on to later. But for me, Spielberg at his peak makes perfect cinema entertainment, which engages you enough, but also there's a sense of spectacle there as well. And seeing this on the big screen, don't get me wrong, was fantastic. But talking less about the film and more about the remaster, having seen the, the Blade Runner 4K remaster recently, which looks stunning, the one thing I will say, I was a little bit disappointed by the remaster on this. I thought the picture... Do you know where I'm coming from, Pete? Although you've not seen it before. Yeah, I've heard this from other people yeah. as well, that, that maybe some of it... Well, maybe some of it's slightly noticeably out of focus yes. and some of, some of the yeah. shots aren't as pristine as you might expect I mean we raved about the, the Terminator 2 um, reprinting yeah. uh, despite the 3D stuff being a bit superfluous I think that that looked beautiful yeah. whereas this one maybe not quite at that level but I mean yeah still though to see it at the cinema is a privilege and that you know, I didn't it, necessarily it absolutely think is yet, so, and, yeah. and you touched on at the beginning of this review the, the John Williams score and even in that introductory film we had Spielberg talking about the way that he thought that yeah, John, thought given it John all, Williams given it is always Star Wars. Yeah, John Williams <laughs> would be sort of exhausted creati- creatively after Star Wars, but the the score here is incredible. I mean, it it's the kind of film that you watch. This is like when I listen to um, sort of foundational early hip hop records, and right. I realise that MCs and hip hop artists that I hold in such high esteem are are re- not poor imitations of, but are so in debt. 
to yeah. the forerunners and the OGs of that field. And in this case, Steven Spielberg is the OG because, man... And I mean, yeah, the score from John Williams, as we've said, but I mean, there are so many, not only oral, but like visual cues here that have been um, replicated yeah. by a myriad of different films. No, and I think, it's, I think it's, it's very easy to forget, with, with especially and quite a lot of Spielberg's later output, which is, you know, technically, technically superb. But I, I, I think he's not the filmmaker he once was. And basically, I came out of Close Encounters wishing Spielberg was young again. Because to watch this, I suppose... But then you've got your Denny Villeneuve and you, you've got another generation of filmmakers that he's inspired. So I suppose, you know, that that's not lost. But I came out of this thinking, yes, that's, you know, that's him at his peak. Like, I, I think it's great, you know, that Jurassic Park a few years later. But, you know, peak Spielberg, I think, unfortunately, may be past us. But it's quite nice to be reminded. And especially... You know, as you said, you thought it was a minor work. It's not a minor work. Absolutely. And I mean, this this is a way of maybe segueing into our second feature review of today. But the second film that we're going to talk about today has been much publicised for the way it uses sort of allegorical subtext. I would argue fairly vehemently that of the two films we reviewed this week, the one with much more fertile allegorical subtext stuff to think about and discuss is Close Encounters and it is a okay, mother. Yeah, I, I think, as you said, Paul, this is there's a lot of spectacle here, but this is a thinking man's film. This is a film that will make you think about your own position, not only in the universe, but in the sort of small circle that you inhabit. Well, no, I'd agree I with you. In the, way, you know, in the way that I think it's fair to say that everyone listening has probably seen Close Encounters, uh, in the way that he, he so quickly just to drop his family to, to, to take this trip around the galaxy... You know, is 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 a metaphor for you know dropping your family to follow your art, and there's, and it, there's a lot to think and, about. And, in that, and so. at, at least a surface level, I mean, again, linking to to the Aronofsky film that we'll come on to, the, the Dreyfus character is is arguably mentally ill, mm. and so we're in that territory yeah. as well as your you know. Well, he pretty much admits as much in the shower with he's sitting in the bath going, I, "I don't know what I need to do." Right, and um, you've got and you've got kids. Kids shot, or the, sorry, I should say, the perspective of children or the reaction shots of children uh, beholding a father ravaged by mental illness. I mean, this is not some sort of um, pure popcorn um, confection. This is really rich material, and yeah, I mean, we could rave probably on and on and on, and we've got to wrap this review up. But I would just compel anyone who was like me and had left this thing out of sort of essential viewing for a little while to check out Close Encounters as soon as you can because this thing will stick with you, it will make you think and as we've mentioned it's just a fantastically high level piece of entertainment Yeah, superb film, superb film Right, after that we will get into Mother Um, Give us a little bit of an interlude Jack So we are back to review Mother, <laughs> or however it is that you want to pronounce the word mother when it's followed immediately by a question mark and written entirely in lowercase. I think find it's an exclamation mark. What did I say? Question, question mark. mark. Did I really? Yes. I've lost the actual plot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Much like Aaron does for most of the film. Mother? Maybe it should be followed by a question mark yeah. uh, with what we're going to say in mind. Yes. Uh, so this is Darren Aronofsky's follow-up to 2014's Noah, which itself is the follow-up to a career that has been as diverse as you could possibly imagine, starting as it did in the late 90s with uh, the, the slightly... Um, obscure and lesser seen film Pi about obsession and mathematics and patterns in the world which is 
for me a, a phenomenal piece of work on to Requiem for a Dream which nobody who's seen it will ever forget for probably no, I, uh, left that film, I ended that film shaking in tears I think when I first watched I, it so, I yeah. remember I, I watched this uh, that film uh, Requiem for a Dream with uh, one of my good friends he fell asleep uh, early into the film I had to wake him up and say there's nothing I can say to you I've got to go to bed um, from yeah. there yeah what just happened mate well no Ar- Aronofsky <laughs> then um, branched into an area that I think is is very interesting to discuss in, in relation to Mother which was uh, the film The Fountain which was all about um, time and loss and longing and history but in this film, we are in very different territory, at least on the surface. We are in the house um, of a character played by Javier Bardem, who plays a poet, and a character played by Jennifer Lawrence, who is his young wife. We know that he's been married before. We know that there was a house fire at some point, which has left the house in almost complete disrepair. Jennifer Lawrence is setting about... Um, the, the not only upkeep but the sort of um redesign i guess and redecoration of that house to bring it back to its former glory and from this point the home is invaded by a what is a trickle that turns into a torrent of unexpected visitors here's a clip lemonade oops oh careful Thought you might like some. Yes, thank you. Secret family recipe. Which part of the lemons? How's your hand? Mm. Still stinging. Sorry. It's not like it was your fault. You don't have any painkillers, do you? So, yes, uh, that is uh, a clip uh, that shows you just how potentially interesting this film could be um we were really excited i'm always very excited for a darren aronofsky film I, i'm not gonna lie i think he's great i actually quite like noah um yeah so I, I'm, I'm aware that i'm i'm in a minority on that one but i, I genuinely quite like i noah, remember so. distinctly paul on the episode where we were talking about the the imminent release of mother that i gushed <laughs> about the way that darren aronofsky's uh back catalogue is is sort of almost without flaw Apart from perhaps, in my opinion, um, Noah, and then we you know disagree slightly about that film, but a filmmaker that holds in such high esteem, and here an intriguing premise, an intriguing trailer, this um, motif of uh, God help you, a fucking terrible trailer. Do you think so? Yes, a completely terrible trailer for the film, or just in general. For the film, it just it's okay, but just but, film, but yeah. we hadn't seen the film when we saw the trailer. So yeah, as far yeah. as I was yeah. concerned, when we were building up to this my excitement levels were sort of fever pitch because I thought this thing was going to be some sort of creepy, um, visceral, uh, uh, yeah, gut puncher, not unlike uh, something like Requiem for a Dream, but obviously in a different uh, sort of area or, or territory. To me, Paul, and I'll start with this as some sort of challenge, uh, this film is what happens when you take the kind of sprawling ambition of the fountain you combine that with sensory overload from Requiem for a Dream and throw in sort of the religious concerns of Noah, but not in a good way. Um, kick us off. You like this more than I do, and I kind of want to know why. I think I did like it more than you do, but I didn't like it as much as I've liked the director's previous work. But start but, positive. No, I will. Start I'll, positive. I'll start positive. I like Aronofsky, I like Aronofsky uh, at his best in the same way like I like Lynch at his best. 
when I'm not 100% sure what's going on and I don't have 100% context to the situation. I will say, I was, I will straight up say now, I did not pick up a lot of what was going on here and my other half did. So when I came out, she was like, what do you mean you didn't follow that uh, without trying to put too many spoilers into it? Um, so I didn't entirely get what was going on. That being said, I really, really liked the second half of the film because it made me kind of, it engaged me a lot more than the first half and I really enjoyed trying to question what was going on and by the end I did, I think I, I certainly grasped more than I thought when I when I googled it at the end, but we'll come around to that in a minute. Um, but for me, the first half dragged quite a lot and was a little bit on the dull side, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to jump in here and say that I think both of the lead pieces of casting here are problematic. Um, I think that... It's much publicised that Darren Aronofsky is now in a relationship with leading lady Jennifer Lawrence, but that is neither here nor there when it comes to the casting of this film. I think that Jennifer Lawrence is uh, struggling for the range that she needs in a role that is so harrowing and so physically and emotionally demanding that I think it leaves her, um, or it it does her a disservice. I mean, where is the closest we've seen Jennifer Lawrence to this film? It's the horror film House at the End of the Street. Yeah, That's the closest we got to this. And I think she she did okay there. She sort of was treading water in that film. And, and And I think this is a little bit beyond her, to be honest. And then I would say on top of that, Javier Bardem, as much as he's an actor that I very much enjoyed in, in a certain number of, of films that he's made previously, I think he is such a blank here. He's such an unknowable blank that there's very little to, to sort of hang unknowable. your... Unknowable? Is that a pun related to Noah? It, it may be, <laughs> accidentally. Sorry. No, it's not. But, but I, I found it very difficult to be invested in the relationship and in either of the two central characters further than the general concern that you might have for a person who's thrown into peril way beyond their control. I mean, am I wrong? I I don't see this written about or talked about too much around this film, but I think the casting of it was very problematic at least when it comes to those leading leading two roles maybe not in the case of, of Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer who I think do quite good I think work. They, yeah Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer I think were great um yeah I, I, I would I would I would tend to agree with you I think I think probably have about him I think for me coped, coped better than, than Jennifer Lawrence I think it's it's interesting to see Jennifer Lawrence try and do other things um but no, as I said, I, I, I wanted to like this film a lot more, and you know, context context does help this film. Um, there's an argument. There's an argument that I have read, and, and certainly Seth Rogen got involved on Twitter, where people said if you need to Google film when you come out, then it's a failure. I don't necessarily agree with that because that puts all of David Lynch film surely as as worthless exercises. So I, I see no issue in having to look into some context of a film. I certainly looked into looked into some further context into Stalker. So I don't see not getting it being a problem. Um, for me, the first half was just quite dull. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you. I... I think that also going back on the sort of Javier Bardem point, he's an actor who who works in Spanish, mm. for me, uh, much like uh, Penelope Cruz. And then he's an actor who works as an unknowable or mysterious character, as in uh, No Country for Old Men. I think, and I'm not going to spoil the film here, Paul, I promise you that. I think that once you, because you're talking about... Sort of, that <laughs> you're sort of talking about uh, Googling this film, researching it, and the, you know, it should this film should be called something like subtext instead of mother because that's what we're here for I guess but you know when you learn what the subtext of that character is or maybe that 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 penny drops during the film I think that undercuts that piece of casting and that performance even further because if that 
if that actor is supposed to be representing that character and being that one dimensional, unknowable and unlikable, that to me is is a very myopic view of very big issues. Mm. And I'm talking cryptically because we can't give too much away about the film. And that's, you know, well, it's biblical, isn't it? It's it's biblical, biblical, Paul. He's been been accused. But then in that case, then he's been certain certain people have accused him of mocking the Bible to an extent. And in which case is he then mocking? A big, I, a big player in the Bible I, without spoiling it. I could kind of care. I couldn't really care less whether whether he is or he isn't, and, and not that that's the challenge that, that you're making. I just think that Paul, the central tenet, and I think you're agreeing with me at least on this part, to what's problematic with Mother is the way in which the the surface level narrative is so unengaging in the first... Uh, I would say in the first two of the three acts... I completely agree with you. The, the yeah. subtext stuff and the allegorical stuff does not have the heft that either Aronofsky or the, the sort of advocates of this film would like it to have. Do you know what? You've hit the nail on the head. And this is the thing. I've, I've read a lot about this film, a lot of people banging on about, oh, it's shit and art house is this and there's one particular person that's been winding me up on Facebook who claims to be an artist who is an actual artist in paint uh, and has not seen the film and keeps banging on about art house films being shit shut up uh, art house films are a valid genre and you're allowed to interpret films however you've hit them there on the head there Pete the problem is for me is that the first the first certainly for me possibly the first half of the film maybe not the first two thirds just weren't engaging enough for me then to I, I'd kind of switched off because I wasn't interested enough to then go, what does this all mean afterwards? Whereas, for example, Stalker, talk, talking about Stalker earlier, Stalker is a prime example of a film that you go, oh, this is hurting my head, but it looks beautiful, and there is something so engaging about Stalker that's making me think as I go on. And do you know what? You, you have nailed it there, because we, through the first half of Mother, I was just like, I'm not that interested in what's going on. So by the time but I that's... come round to the fact where I go and I don't really get it, and my other half said to me, she was like, I don't see why you don't get that. You did a film studies degree. I'm like, I may well have done, but the first, but I kind of, my brain had switched off because the first half was a bit yeah. dull. And, 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 I'm not, and I'm not coming to this trying to sort of be a smarty pants by saying that, yeah, the, the allegorical stuff was there for me sort of front and centre. It was to me, obviously... Uh, not obviously it was to me so foregrounded mm. as to almost burden down the film and so when we get into this explosive final act of the film which again we can't really talk about for, for fear of spoiling things I, I it felt unearned I mentioned that that word earlier on it felt unearned to me and it felt very very problematic and it felt and I've heard this word thrown around in relation to this film but it felt almost um, abusive and I don't mean that in the sense that the character played by Jennifer Lawrence here um, is is abused. I mean, it's a performance. It's a, it's a, a theatrical performance. But the whole thing, um, the best way I can sum it up, and I think I've said this before, it felt to me like a little bit like being stuck, a sort of performing arts retreat <laughs> with a migraine. And it's a performing, arts, a performing arts retreat that you didn't ask to go on but you're not allowed to leave. Yeah. And I felt like we've done so much to set up the fact that this is allegorical and this all has deeper meaning and this is all sort of a, a, a bit of a passion play and a and a I that it just left me it can't be cold. You can't be cold coming out of this thing. It just left left me a little bit angry if I'm honest about um, the way that a filmmaker has used his formidable talents to service a project that seems to me in its 
very conception, a little bit juvenile and a little bit short-sighted and lacking a sort of depth of understanding of the issues at hand that would be required of someone making such potent material. And I think, and again, Paul, this is not a criticism of anything you said, but I think when we're talking about filmmakers with subtext, we can't put Darren Aronofsky on evidence of this film anywhere near the ballpark of David Lynch. Because, or Andrei Tarkovsky. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I just think that he works in the immediate. He works when it comes to the immediacy of physical... Um, physical experience see Requiem for a Dream he no, doesn't no, work when it no. comes to the and metaphysical honest, I, which I agree is with what you, but I'm here. saying I, I have no issue I take issue with people saying if you have to research a film afterwards then it misses the point as a film no it doesn't no it should just stand um, or fall on its own merits and yeah. as you've said Paul if if you completely miss all the, the subtext this should still be a film able to engage you and I'm not sure yes. that that's the case I would agree with that I completely agree with that so yeah uh, mother see it certainly see it it's a talking point oh and, and, and um, in terms of sorry I just wanted to say like in terms of the house and I, I haven't had your take on this but in terms of the house it made me think of uh, the Del, Del Toro film uh, Crimson Peak mm. and the way in which it's an inferior not obviously we're in completely different territory but in terms of the environment surrounding these characters what Del Toro did with Crimson Peak is to me so much more visually impressive in, in many ways than this film I, would, I hadn't thought of that but yes I mean the, the, the histrionics <laughs> yeah. of the last comparison I thought but the yeah. last third uh, excluded I think I think that is the case and yeah I, maybe if not subtext I would probably call this film <laughs> histrionics because that's what a lot of it amounted to and for me it's right down there with the the, the the, the least of Aronofsky's work but I think you like it a little bit more than I do I think I do but I, I, I co-sign on a lot of your criticisms in fairness and that, that thing you said about like the first half not being engaging yeah. and then you kind of losing the will to almost losing the will to enjoy the subject or appreciate the subject in the second half is bang on the money so uh, I think you might, have, you might have even swayed me a little bit there Pete to be fair so, um, but yes, um, we could go on and on about this for quite some time, but we've been going on and on for quite some time ourselves. Um, so that is it from this week's episode. Um, Jack's homework uh, will be set by the listeners again this week. So tweet yeah. us up. Go for it. Uh, and give him a film that you want him to watch. Yeah, because if you don't come up with anything, it's going to be Visitor Q. And I don't think... I don't Jack, think Jack will like this. I think he'll be broken by yeah. that film. So yeah, fairness, <laughs> we'll yeah. see. Uh, so yeah, catch us on uh, Instagram, Stranger to Cinema, uh, at Stranger Cinema on Twitter, Stranger Cinema on Facebook. Uh, we will be back next week after our trip to Exit 6. Thank you for listening. Shut up and sit down.